Okay, good morning everyone. Thank you. I heard that voice. Okay, um, we're still waiting for people to come, but I, uh, I'm going to read some of these. Um, they're funny. If I can find them. Oh yeah. These are bulletin bloopers. And after I read these, you'll be so thankful we don't have bulletins. 10.30 a.m. worship, communion, candle lighting, in remembrance of those who have died this last year at both worship services. Okay, if you choose to heave during the postlude, please do so quietly. I like this one. Children's choir will be hell on Sunday nights. So, all right. Today, uh, we're going through these Old Testament characters. And um, I have picked one that I want to talk about, and his name is, well, actually, he's the shortest guy in the Bible. You know who that is? Nehemiah. Yeah. Right. Okay, so you'll never have to hear that one again. Okay, so let's just go ahead and pray, and then uh, we'll ask God to touch our hearts here. Lord, we're thankful that um, you are worthy of our surrender. You're worthy of all of our hearts. You alone are worthy, and we thank you, Lord, that uh, one day. Every knee is going to bow in heaven. Every knee will bow on earth. And every knee will bow under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And God, we really look forward to that day. And we're thankful that you've called us to yourself. You've made us your sons and daughters. Heirs. And God, we, we thank you for the privilege we have today of just bowing our hearts before you and surrendering our lives afresh. And we look forward to the day when we're going to be with you in heaven, worshiping you, along with millions and millions and millions of others, and angels and saints. And now, Lord, we just thank you for the time here that we have to open your word. Um, These are eternal words. Words of life. And how often do we have a chance to do that together, anyway, as a church? once a week, so to speak. So, God, we we just ask you to touch our hearts through it. And I pray that we wouldn't just uh, have ears today that would, to be tickled, but, Lord, we want to have ears to hear what your Holy Spirit has to say to us. And so we ask you just to open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from, uh, from thy law. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'd like to just begin with a little... Uh, A question, two questions. And these are not trick questions, but I'd like you to think back on the years that you've known Christ as your Savior. For some of you, that's going to be a number of years, and some of you, it's not going to be very many years. But I want you to identify, pick out the person or persons that you feel God used to have the greatest impact in your life spiritually. The ones who helped you develop the convictions that you're trying to live out today. And that's maybe one person or maybe several. I want you to have that in mind. If you have a pen or pencil and you have that outline, you can write their names down on that.
And the second question is this. Why? Why that person? What was there about that person or persons that gave you such a desire to change from the way you were when you were first walking with the Lord? You have deep convictions today that many of you are walking in. What was, what was there about that person that caused you to have that desire to want to change? And I'm asking that, questions, that, that question because it's what I want to talk about today. As I thought back on my years that I've known the Lord, and there's a number of them now, and the men who marked my life, um, who affected me in the greatest way, I think it was yes, yes, there are things that they shared. I think that's true. But I, I think it was much more than that. And I, uh, I can get good teaching from Christian radio. But that wasn't... That wasn't all that changed my life. And I can remember when I was looking at these guys and hanging with those guys and I was a real young Christian, I was single, and I thought to myself, Lord, those are the guys I want to hang with the rest of my life. I want to labor with those. I want to be on that team, teamed up. Because I saw in them something that I think Timothy must have seen in the Apostle Paul. Just yesterday in my quiet time, I was reading and I got a brand new thought from 2 Timothy chapter 3. And if you brought your Bibles, or if there's one there, you can turn to that. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're not going to have PowerPoint this morning uh, because I don't know how to write do PowerPoint on my new laptop. is a Macintosh and I'm done with it. So, yeah. So you'll just have to follow along. You're going to have to get, hope you brought your Bibles. If not, uh, you can just listen. But if you did have them, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he's challenging him to stay the course, to hold the line, because there's false teachers in the church that were opposing truth, and he describes them this way. But you, Timothy, are men of depraved mind. They won't succeed, and their folly will become obvious to all. But you, Timothy, I want you to continue in the things I taught you. And then he reminds him in verse 10, and this is the Clark expanded paraphrase, let me tell you. You're going to see how expanded it is in a second. But he says this, he's, it's like he was saying, Timothy, you followed my teaching. I mean, when we were together, I can remember just how excited you were and how eager you were to not only hear the Word, but to put it into practice. And, and how quick it was. You, you, you obeyed and your, lives, and your life was changed. and You followed my teachings. But, that's not all that Timothy followed. Paul's just getting started on this list. He isn't done. He says, Timothy, you followed my teaching. You also followed my conduct. When you think of conduct, that's, that's a person's life. That's how they're conducting themselves. That's how they're living. That's everything about them. Um, their, their attitudes and their desires, their responses, their speech, their actions. That's just everything. So, um, conduct. You followed my conduct. So it was all of that. And then it says, you followed my purpose. 
By purpose for living, you saw I was living with purpose. A greater purpose than anything this world has to offer. A noble purpose. An eternal purpose. And that's helping people find the Savior. What more greater purpose is that? Than to take as many people into heaven on our elbows, on our locked arms with them as we can. On that day. And I hope you can be here on Wednesday night. (laughs) So what greater purpose is that than to help other people find the Savior and then build them up into fully devoted followers of Christ. That's our whole mission, you guys. That's what I think that's what got Paul up in the morning out of bed. And hopefully that's getting us up in the mornings. We're thinking about that. Thinking about lost people. Thinking about how we can multiply our lives. He said, you followed that. You followed my purpose. Strange, isn't it, that he's writing these things. You followed my purpose. You followed my faith. You followed my patience, my love, my perseverance and persecutions and sufferings. I think if I could ask Timothy, what was the one thing that you saw in Paul that that influenced your life so much? I think he could sum up this whole list with one word. Heart. It was Timothy's, it was Paul's heart for God. And as I think back on the men that God used in my life to mark my life in the biggest way and to and to have the biggest impact, and there were several of them, what was it that caused me to be so drawn to these guys that I would just want to pull up stakes and and spend the rest of my life laboring together and being on that team? I would have to say, it was their heart for God. I saw it in how they lived. I saw it in how they spoke and how they treated others with such grace and honor. I saw their faith and their love and their, well, their character. I saw their heart for God. And I saw this and I was attracted. And I wanted, I said, Lord, I want to be like that. I love the way the Weist translation says this verse. But as for you, Timothy, you were attracted as a disciple to me because of, and he starts listing him, my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, etc., etc. It was Paul's heart that made him so attractive. <clears throat> you got to have heart. I want to read an article entitled that. And it's something that sort of illustrates what I'm saying. <clears throat> Getting a big job done calls for heart. Having an IQ is not essential. Neither is being a certain age. Or possessing a particular temperament. You don't even need the backing of the majority. History books are full of incredible stories of men and women who accomplished remarkable feats in the face of unbelievable odds. The record book also includes the opposite, of course, powerful possibilities that failed to reach full potential due to the loss of heart. Napoleon is an example. By 1812, Napoleon ruled most of Europe. Every army that had opposed him had been defeated. Not only had he provoked the resignation of the last holy emperor, he had the man's daughter. Except for three details, Britain, Spain, and Russia, the French Caesar had everything he wanted. So he decided that year to invade Russia. Having mustered his army... Napoleon trounced Russia in a couple of major battles. Even though the Russian army made a gallant last stand, Moscow fell. 
by October 1812, Napoleon sat in Moscow, surrounded by his undefeated troops, and nothing on the horizon seemed impossible. But something happened that changed all that. Though no one seems to know how it started, a fire broke out in Moscow. It burned much of the city, leaving Napoleon's army without sufficient food and supplies and protective winter quarters. He was forced to abandon the city. He headed west amidst a bitter Russian winter with the Tsar's troops at his heels, all of which proved too much for the once valiant army of Napoleon. Within two months of his greatest victory, Napoleon's army had virtually ceased to exist. He struggled on for two more years, but after Moscow, he was a beaten man. Interestingly, the reason was not a loss on the battlefield. It was a loss of heart. Brilliant and visionary though he was, he was unable to keep his troops alive. When Moscow went up in flames, Waterloo was inevitable. Why? Because troops without heart can't fight. That's, an, that's a secular example, kind of negative. But I want us to look at a positive example, and it's a biblical example. As I was reading through Nehemiah recently, I was just challenged by this man's heart. He had a passion for God that pushed him out of a very secure job and the security of his home in Persia to oversee the rebuilding of a wall hundreds of miles away around Jerusalem. Huge job. Huge obstacles. Using Rich's term, it was risky. It was a risky faith venture. And one that God never even told him to do. He never told him not to. But his heart told him to. Did he get the job done? You bet. In record time. 52 days. And why? Well, because everyone far and wide just really thought building that wall was a grand idea. Hardly. Well, maybe it was because he had thousands of masons and engineers who just really loved to build walls. No. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6. Gives us the reason. It's on your outline there. So we built the wall for the people had a mind to work. In the margin of my New American Standard, <clears throat> there's a footnote on that word mind, and it says the term mind is the Hebrew word for heart. I think if you have a new, new international, I think that's what it says, heart there. But the people had a heart to work. The job got done. Another word for heart is courage. Years ago, when our kids were just starting out homeschooling, we bought an early copy of Webster's Dictionary, 1828. It's about this thick. I didn't bring it today because it was too heavy. If you look up the word courage in that one, though, it, it comes from the word C-O-E-U-R, which is a French word. Is Ned in here? Anyway, it's a French word for heart. That's what it means. Courage means heart. And he defines courage this way. The quality that enables one to face difficulty and danger with firmness, without fear or depression of spirit. 
In this, early, in this early dictionary, Webster, who was a born-again Christian, often concluded his definitions with a scriptural reference. And the one that he used here after this definition of courage was, was Deuteronomy 31, verse 68. And it's in this chapter that Moses gives his final farewell speech to the children of Israel just before Moses' death. And so he brings Joshua front center and he realizes this young man's going to lead these three million people across the Jordan and they're going to enter, in, encounter the enemy. And so he speaks to Joshua in front of all of those people and he says this. He says, Be strong and courageous, Joshua, for you're going to go and with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers. And you shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. See, I think Moses knew how easy it would be for Joshua and his troops to lose heart, to lose courage. They would soon face walled cities, high-walled cities, and not-so-friendly giants. And the only thing they had known for the last 400 years was slavery. They, they, they knew nothing about how to fight. So Moses does something very smart. He turns their attention to God. Nothing like a good promise to lift your heart and to give you courage. We need to remember that. 3,000 promises in the Bible. We should have several of them memorized. And go to those regularly. Have those become your close friend, familiar friend. Nehemiah did the same thing with his troops. <clears throat> Shortly after he arrives, he pulls everyone together. <clears throat> and in spite of the past 12 years of, of them living with broken down walls and disgrace, he says to them, we got a big job. we got a big job to do. we got a wall to build. And it was Nehemiah's example. It was his faith, his conduct, his courage, his heart for God that inspired the people and gave them a heart and gave them the courage to work. So now, if you, have, if you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 6. And if you didn't bring one, and I'm sorry I don't have it on PowerPoint, just listen. There's a few things that we're gonna, I'm going to mention here. I'm going to go really fast. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. But it starts like this in verse 1. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, not a gap was left in it. Though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply, I am carrying on a great project. I love that. I'm carrying on a great project. I can't come down off this wall. Why should I stop the work and, and while I leave it to go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message. Each time I gave them the same answer. Then on the fifth time they sent a message, but they also had a letter that was sealed. And as he read it, it said this. As Nehemiah read it, it says, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, whoever this guy is, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you're building the wall. Moreover,
according to these reports, you're about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Jude. There's a king in Judah. This report will get back to the king, so you better come. We've got to consider this together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up in your head. <laughs> they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work. It will not be completed. That's what fear does. It makes weak. But I prayed, strengthen my hand. And one day in the house of Shemaiah, and then this false prophet gets, in, gets involved. And he's just an informer. And he tries to coax Nehemiah to go into the, into the temple and, 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 uh, because they're going to come and kill him. That's what he's saying. They're coming to kill you. But he realized that God had not sent him in verse 12, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He's been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing that. And then in verse 14, all these other guys, they were trying, it says, to intimidate me. In verse 19, and Tobias sent letters to intimidate me. The chapter is titled, The Enemy's Plot, in my Bible. And reading this, you would naturally think that Sanballat and Tobiah were the enemy. And they were, but they weren't the real enemy, were they? They were simply pawns being used by Satan to oppose this great work this great project. And he employed a couple strategies that we see right here in this chapter. Satan loves to do this. Fear and intimidation. Verse 9. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands would get too weak and it will not be completed. Fear. Sanballat and Tobiah were right in their assumption, fear makes weak. But they were wrong in assuming that this group of Jews would give in to it. And what kept them from that? Courage. Heart. They had a heart to work. Fear and intimidation. Intimidation. Webster defines intimidation this way. To frighten. To dishearten. You know when you diss something, you take it away. To dislike means you don't like. To disapprove means you don't approve. To dishearten means you don't hearten. Or I mean you, you take heart away. That's what you do. It takes courage away. That's what dishearten is. It's, it's taking that right away from you. The courage to do what you know you should do. Intimidate also means to abash. Well, I also had to look that one up because that's not a word I use um, in my vocabulary from week to week. Abash. It's similar to dishearten. It means to make the spirits fail, to cast down the countenance, to make ashamed when we shouldn't be, to make ashamed when we shouldn't be, to confuse or confound as by suddenly a consciousness of guilt or error or mistakes I've made or inferiority. Some of you may be thinking, yeah, that's me. I'm all that. I'm all that. Think about Sunday morning. You come to, you open the door and you're walking in and you see a, you, there's a room full of 
just all kinds of conversations, just buzzing and happy faces and friendly smiles and handshakes and all of a sudden you feel what? Like turning around and going out. Kind of inferior. And you see a new guy sitting over there. And you think, I'll go talk to him. And then you start going and talking to him and you think, what am I doing? I can't do that. He doesn't look friendly. Well, he's way out of my league. I don't know what he would even talk about. Inferiority. It sets in big time. And Satan smiles. A sudden consciousness of guilt or mistakes that I've made or feeling very inferior. We need to recognize where this comes from. We need to give Satan a little more credit. I guess that doesn't sound real right, does it? But we need to recognize his work. The Apostle Paul said, We are not unaware of Satan's schemes. And we see some of them right here in chapter 6. I'm already on my closing thought. You probably think we're about done, though. Every pastor in our region is very well familiar with these words. Brothers on the wall. That's the way Rick Whitney sees us. That's the way he begins every letter that he writes to the pastors. And that's the way he wants us to see ourselves. Brothers on the wall. And I like that. That inspires me. Because it reminds me, hey, I am involved in a great work. This is a great work. It's an eternal work. There's souls that are perishing all around us. We're the lighthouse. This is a great work. I am involved in that. And I'm not alone. I'm not by myself. We're on the wall. With the other pastors right here in the church. I am with those guys. And I'm with the other men in the region. We're on the same wall, the same mission. And it's a great work. Together. And I love chapter 3. You can turn back to chapter 3. And as I read parts of chapter 3, I want you to ask yourself this question. Is this an encouraging picture or what? Alright, chapter 3. I, I, I'm going to cruise through the, some of these names. I'm going to butcher them. That's okay. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers and priests and built the sheep gate. They were the first ones on the wall. The high priest and the other priests. They were the first guys up on the wall. And then they built a sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. And then the other walls and the other things that they built. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachur, the son of Emery, built. Now the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. And they laid its beams and hung its doors and its bolts and bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hazak did repairs. And next to him, Meshalem, the son of whatever. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Bena, also made repairs. Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites, the Tekoites made repairs. But their nobles did not support the work of their masters. Wow. If those guys would have known this was going to be written down for centuries of Christians to read, guarantee you they'd have made a different choice. <laughs> and that might be up in heaven. It says, God says forever the word is settled in heaven. But they're not going to be sad about it up there. But, 
It's interesting to me that God's going all the way through this chapter. Holy cow, there's a lot of, there's a lot of verses in this chapter. And it, in, in, over 31 times it says, next to him, next to him, after him, right after him. And then God gives all the names of the people that are up there serving. And he also mentions the ones that aren't serving. And some of the ones that weren't serving, some of the guys at the beginning of this chapter, they do double duty. They appear later in the chapter. They get done with their assigned project and they go to some other part of the wall. Okay. Now, next to him, where were we? Let's go to seven. Next to them, we got Matthiah, well, Gibeonite, and Jaden, the Mithraite, and the men of Gibeon, Mitzvah. They also made repairs. And a lot of times they're just making repairs. It, it's, it's a wall they're repairing. And I've kind of thought about that as we think about this summer. We're trying to think of going north and going south. And we might do some repairing up there because we had, we had some walls in the past. This is kind of interesting. Anyway, you can just think about that. Verse 12. And next to him, Shalom, the son of Haloshesh, Halo, whatever, the official of half the district of Jerusalem. This is a big shot. He's up there making repairs. He's the official of half the district of Jerusalem. And notice, he and his daughters. This is my favorite verse out of the whole list. Because it's not just men up there. It's not just dads. It's, it's families. It's, it's daughters. My goodness. That's kind of cool, I think. Dads and moms and sons and daughters. you got to picture this. Laborers, officials, commoners, up on that wall, side by side. Is that an encouraging picture or what? To me, that's so encouraging. I would have liked to have been up there. All this in this great work, and they got it done. And they got it done. So what was so great about this great work? And to me, it's kind of interesting that God keeps track of who was there and who wasn't. Those that are serving well and those that are not serving so well, Someday when we stand before Him, we'll be glad we served well. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy. So, let's think about this now. What was so great about that great work? It was, I think, reestablishing Jerusalem as God's chosen base of operations in the world. And it could be a testimony of His presence and reality to those who live there. A testimony of God's presence and reality. And that's how I think we should view this summer's faith adventure that we're getting ready to go on. It's a great work. And by God's grace, we'll be establishing a, a testimony for God in two new areas. Up north and up south. And down south. While maintaining a real strong presence and testimony right here at home base. 120 years ago, Moses tells them, you've got to have heart. I mean, 120 years of age. That's how old he was when he spoke those words. The last thing he said to the children of Israel before they, they went, into the, went into the promised land, you guys have to have heart. You've got to have courage. And they needed to hear that. Because God's plan for one of them was to cross the Jordan, face the giants, take possession of the land, and expand God's kingdom. Well, it's good for us to hear that too as we look ahead to this summer.
Okay, so let me just, I will conclude here. So what can you do as you think about this? Having a heart for God. Your heart for God is the most important thing. That's your relationship with God. That's the only thing you're taking to heaven with you. When you stand before God, it's going to be you and Him and your relationship. We can't spend too much time developing that. Let's get to know Him and have Him use us now and be useful. We're okay. Let's, let's look at this. What can you do? Ask God for a wholehearted heart. You can write that in if you have a pencil. Ask God for a, a wholehearted heart. David prayed in Psalm 119, I think it's verse 40, that God open, give me understanding and I, and I will obey your law and keep it with all my heart. It's almost like David was bargaining with God. He said, God, if you just give me more understanding, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to obey your, your law, but I'm going to keep it with all my heart. I'm going to do it with all my heart. Ask God for a whole heart. To be wholehearted. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with a whole heart. And then picture yourself climbing up on the wall. I think that's how we should see ourselves this summer. We're up on a wall. We're all in. The people had a heart to work. <laughs> Ask God to give you that heart. He gave it to them. And there is a lot of work to do now that we're on three different walls this summer, on three different Sundays. There's a lot of work. Secondly, give God your heart. Proverbs 23, it says, Give me your heart, my son. <clears throat> Actually, that was Solomon writing to his son, but it can be applied to the Lord as well. Give me your heart, because that's what God wants. He wants our heart. What did Jesus say the greatest commandment was? To love God with all your heart. God's after that relationship. He wants all of our hearts. He doesn't want, to ha he doesn't want us to be half-hearted. Are, are you willing to do that? Or are you willing to just give Him all your heart? No hidden compartments, no reservations. Hmm. That's the most important thing. Every morning of every day, acknowledge His Lordship and gladly surrender control. I have that written down as kind of a reminder to me. Every time I have my quiet time, it's right there where I can see it. And I try to do that every morning. I acknowledge His Lordship every morning of every day. Acknowledge His Lordship and gladly surrender control. And I'm glad that Jeremy picked that song this morning, Surrender. Maybe that wouldn't be a bad way to apply that. Just sing that song if you know the words. Sing it to the Lord. Worship Him in your quiet time every day. And then number three, guard your heart. Guard it from feelings of failure and inferiority and anything that Satan wants to use to discourage you, to diss your heart, to dishearten you. I like the verse in 1 John 3.19, and it says this, it's on your outline. This is how, this is how we know that we belong to the truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence when our, whenever our heart condemns us. See, our hearts do condemn us, Jeremiah said our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Maybe sometimes it's condemning us in the right way because we're sinning. But in the context here, he's saying that our heart can often condemn us when it shouldn't. 
And so how can we set our hearts at rest in His presence and know that God's okay with me? If my heart's resting in His presence, I'm thinking, God's okay with me. I'm loved by God. I'm accepted by Him. And He wants to use me for His highest purposes. And He just wants me to get going. So how do we do this? He tells us earlier in the passage, when He says, this is how we know. Well, what's the this about? You have to back up. And He says earlier in the passage, let us not love with words or with tongue, but in deed and truth. You see, deeds get us involved in serving. And as we do that, we get our minds off of ourselves and onto others. And that's the formula for getting our hearts back. So early in the Scriptures, we see an example of that. Cain and Abel. And God comes to, to Cain and He says, Cain, why are you so angry? And why has your countenance fallen? And then He gives him the solution. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? But sin is crouching at the door and you must master it. But isn't that a good solution? Just do well and your countenance will be lifted up. That's what John's saying right here. This is how we can set our hearts right. We get out and we start serving others. And God changes. And that's, that's the formula. And that's when God can change our hearts. Okay, and if you can't think of things to do and to serve for this summer, just ask, ask some of the leaders in that, in that region, the central region or the northern region or the southern region, what can I do to help this summer? Because we're all on the wall and we all have ways that we can contribute. God wasn't particular about who was up on that wall. That guy's daughters. Well, what kind of job? I don't know what kind of job they did, but it caught God's attention. He mentions them. So we can, let's get our family, we can have families. We can just think of ways to serve. And you know, I think we'll find this is a joy. I think, frankly, that that was a happy time for those guys up on that wall, even though they were being threatened by their enemies. You know why? Because they had a heart to work. So let's just pray. Lord, thank you for this example. And Lord, we, we, think, we think it's touched on a lot of things even in our own hearts right now, just wanting to every day make sure that we're surrendered to You. We just want to be that way, Lord, and help us to, help us to every day uh, say that. That we just want to commit our day to You. And we want to have You, our Lord, every day surrender. And God, we, we, want to, we, want, we pray that You would show us how we can how you want to use each one of us and you've given us all gifts and temperaments and different abilities and so God, everyone here we, we just want to picture ourselves up on that wall and serving you because Lord, we'll never regret it once we see you face to face and so I thank you that you've, you've called us to, to, uh, to serve and called us to worship Lord, we're here and we, we want to make you happy we want to please you Lord with our hearts we want them to be yours. And uh, we ask you just in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. See you next week.